The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Berean Bible Church. This is part three in our study of hell. Um, And I'm using the word hell in the traditional sense of the the destiny of the wicked, the eternal conscious torment of those who reject Yeshua the Christ. And I've appreciated all the text messages, all the emails I've gotten. I've gotten a lot of feedback through this series. And, you know, like this is the last one, but you can still give me feedback because maybe we'll have to do part four if I get enough feedback. But hopefully this will wrap it up, all right? So far, we've looked at the fact that hell... And the concept that it represents, eternal conscious torment of the lost, are not found in the Scriptures. I know some of you disagree with that, but that's my position. This concept of hell doesn't come from the Bible. Now, newer translations have fixed this, but the King James Version often translated Sheol as hell. But the Hebrew word Sheol... And it's Greek equivalent, Hades. Hades is just the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew shoal. They mean the same thing. They're never used of a fiery place of torment. You will never get the traditional view of hell from those words. It just isn't there. Now, there are several differences of opinion on what exactly shoal is. But most people are clear on the fact that it's not a place of fire, it's not a place of torture. This is ancient Hebrew cosmology. This is how the Hebrews viewed the world. It was a flat earth with a dome over it. Underneath, you see that dark spot under there? I don't know if you're close enough to see it, but it says Sheol. So they viewed Sheol as a place, as a realm where the spirits of souls of the dead are held Awaiting. So it's like this waiting room, basically, for the dead. It's a state of unconscious survival. It's not non existence. It's merely a state of existence where one is not conscious or aware of the passage of time and really doesn't know what's going on. It's like you're sleeping. Now, some see Shoal as a semi conscious state. I'm not really sure what that means. You wake up every once in a while and look around, you know, they're semi-conscious. And some see it as a conscious state. But basically, all are agreed that Shoal is a, a holding tank, a place where the dead went prior to the resurrection, prior to the second coming, to await on the resurrection. Now, this is my view of Shoal. Do you get it? See, I used to hold that view of the holding tank. Now, during this study, my view has kind of shifted, and uh, I see Sheol as synonymous with death. I don't see any difference between them. Now, throughout the Tanakh, we see this fact in a number of passages where death and Sheol are placed in parallel. All right? For example, Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, Death shall be their shepherd. So he's using shoal there just in the sense of death. Their form shall be consumed in shoal. Now, would that fit with death? Their form shall be consumed in death? Yeah, you go into death, you go into grave, and what happens? You just, you're gone, okay? 
Psalm 89, 48 says, What man can live and never see death? Well, the answer is nobody. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Nobody. There, there are parallels there. Now, this is Hannah's prayer. Notice what Hannah prayed. She says, Yahweh kills and he brings to life. We get that right? Now watch. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. So, this is Hannah's theology of Sheol. To die is to be brought down to Sheol, where all the other dead people are, the grave, death, whatever. To be rescued from that condition is to be brought back to life. And that's something that only Yahweh can do. He kills, He makes alive. Alright, one more. Hosea 13.14 I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. Death definitely has a power over it. I shall redeem them from death. They're parallel. He's saying the same thing. Oh, death, where is your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? So, now, the Tanakh uses a lot of different metaphors, a lot of different similes to describe Sheol. It has bars. It's like a hunter setting a trap. Uh, it, all kinds of different metaphors. But the bottom line is it's talking about death, I think. So I see Sheol used to speak not of a place or a realm, but of death of the grave. When someone is in Sheol, they're dead. They cease to exist. So they're gone. But the hope of Israel was what? What is resurrection? It's life. From the dead. You're dead and now you're raised to life. Alright, so the Bible teaches that all who were in Sheol, the grave, all who died, were to be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Daniel 12.2 taught this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Yeshua taught this same thing in John chapter 5. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Everybody's in the grave, they're going to hear His voice. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Yeshua is talking about the resurrection that's to take place at the end of the Jewish age. So who will be raised by Yeshua? It says all who are in the tombs. This includes the righteous and the wicked. It includes everybody. Those who are raised to life and those who are raised to judgment. Believers and unbelievers. This is what Daniel 12.2 taught. So at the second coming, all the dead are raised. The righteous go into the presence of Yahweh. The wicked are cast into the lake of fire. Now, you go to a funeral today and what do you hear? They're in a better place. Well, if you don't believe that the second coming has happened yet, if you believe the second coming is future, they're not in a better place. They're in the grave. Unless you consider that a better place. You know? They're, they're gone. They're not in heaven until the second coming. That's clear from scriptures. And yet, so many who are futures today, they have their relatives in heaven. They have everybody in heaven. Okay? Everybody's there. But no, nobody went there until the resurrection of the dead at the second coming of Christ. Alright, so people were in the grave. At the second coming, they were raised. Now, the Hebrew word shoal and the Greek word 
equivalent, Hades, are never used in the Scripture of a fiery place of torment. They simply speak of the death and the grave. Now, the Greek word tartaro is only found once, and it speaks of the condemned gods or condemned angels, a place where they're held. The only other Greek term that is translated as hell is the word Gehenna. Now, it is my opinion that Gehenna is not speaking about suffering after life, but it's talking about a national judgment that was to come upon Jerusalem in the first century. So, none of those words speak of the abode of the damned where they undergo some eternal conscious torment. Look at what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah is a prophet to Israel. Jeremiah 21.10, he says, For I've set my face against this city, Jerusalem, for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. So God's saying, I'm against Jerusalem. You, you people are whores. You keep going after other gods. You keep disobeying me. I'm going to send the king of Babylon in there to wipe you all out. Now watch what he says. He shall burn it with fire. Oh, people, that must be hell, right? No. He's going to destroy the city and he's going to burn it up. It's national judgment. Let's go on in that text. And to the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of David. Thus says Yahweh, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And he's telling them to be righteous. Alright, do what you're supposed to do lest my wrath go forth like fire. Now watch this. And burn with none to quench it. Oh, we got unquenchable fire. That must be hell, right? No, wrong again. This is a historical event that took place when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. He says, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares Yahweh. I will kindle a fire in your forest and it shall devour all that is around her. This idea of fire, this idea of unquenchable fire is national judgment. And the only people that you're going to find in the New Testament threatened with unquenchable fire were the Judean Jews of Yeshua's generation. Because that, that judgment was coming upon those people. It came upon those people. Now I've been asked by people, what about verses like Matthew 25, 41? Because it doesn't mention Gehenna, but it talks about, you know, it seems to talk about hell. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for his devil, for the devil and his angels. Now, so you say, Well, that's gotta be hell, right? Doesn't that teach eternal conscious torment? No, it doesn't. Okay? I see this as another reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. What's the context of this verse? This is part of the Olivet Discourse, is it not? Which the Olivet Discourse is all about the second coming of Christ at the end of the Jewish age. It's about the judgment of the great white throne and the resurrection. Now, Yeshua taught that the fallen gods... Psalm 82, would be judged at this time. Let's back up in the text of 24-29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The stars is a reference to gods. 
This was a judgment of the gods who were unfaithful to Yahweh. This was, listen, a spiritual judgment that took place simultaneously with the physical judgment that's taking place in Jerusalem in AD 70. Because again, this is what Psalm 82 said would happen to these gods. So this passage in Matthew 25 is just talking about, listen, the gods are going to be judged with fire just like them. Now, again, don't let the word eternal say it's going to go on forever. The judgment, the punishment's death, and that's eternal. You don't overcome it. So therefore, it's eternal. Not fire that's eternal. Uh, I've been asked about other passages like this one in Revelation. Revelation 14, 9, and 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on the forehead or on his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels as in the presence of the Lamb. Let me ask you again, what is the context of this? The context is the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's back up in the text. 14.8 Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Who is Babylon? It's the city of Jerusalem. So these verses are referring to the judgment of Jerusalem and the spiritual judgment of the great white throne, again, that take place simultaneously. Now I think Paul makes this clear in his letter to the Thessalonians. Look at this, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So again, we're talking about judgment. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So the believers in Thessalonica are suffering because of their faith in Christ. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So they're being persecuted by the Jews. And he says, God considers it just to repay those Jews with affliction who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So when is this relief going to come? He says, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. That's the second coming. With His mighty angels in flaming fire. So He's coming. He's coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Those who are persecuting them inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, the Jews, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Again, the punishment is eternal because it's never going to stop. They're separated from God at death. They will always be dead. And from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, It's eternal destruction. It happened in A.D. 70 and to be marked and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So it's my opinion that all of the eternal destruction verses, all of the tormented with fire and sulfur verses, all of the eternal fire verses are speaking of the national judgment of Jerusalem that was about to happen in the first century and the spiritual judgment that went along with it at that time. I see all these verses about torment and fire speaking to first century Jews who are rejecting Christ as their Messiah and about to be judged. They're not talking about eternal conscious torment. 
Paul tells us very clearly that the wages of sin is what? Death. Why did he say that? Now look at the comparison. You sin, you get death. The gift of God, though, is eternal life. So sin's wages are death, not eternal torture. God's gift is life. You know, it seems like the options here are death and life. Now, if the lost were to suffer for eternity, why didn't Paul tell us that? I mean, wouldn't this be a good place? You know, he's presenting the gospel. Okay, let me tell you what. The wages of sin is you're going to burn forever. You're going to be conscious, and you're going to burn forever and ever and ever. I'd be like, yikes. But the gift of God is life. Could Paul have said that? Yeah, he's not... You know, he's not one who is struggling for vocabulary. He could have said that, so why didn't he? Let me ask you this. Why didn't Paul ever mention anything about eternal conscious torment? In any letter to any people? Seems strange, you know. Seems strange that he never brought that up. If that's the destiny of the lost, you'd think Paul would have told us. All right. So the word translated as hell in our Bibles from the Hebrew Sheol and the Greek equivalent Hades are never used of a fiery place of torment. You'll never get that traditional view of hell from the words in your Bible. Now, I know a lot of translations have translated those words hell. It's just a bad translation because a lot of these translators have prejudice. They have views in their mind of what things are and so they put those into the text. Because they're helping you. They think they're helping you. So the, the Greek word Gehenna, when translated hell in so many translations, is not speaking of eternal conscious torment. It's speaking of national judgment. So if none of these words in their Hebrew or Greek give us any idea of eternal conscious torment, where does that idea come from? Where does it come from? You might be surprised. Oh, Dante's Inferno? Oh, we'll get to that. Not yet. Okay. That, that comes later, all right? Listen, <clears throat> the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, which most people think hell is, that doctrine is the product of the domino effect that began with the acceptance of the pagan doctrine of the eternal soul. Now you notice I called that doctrine pagan. Alright? Once it was accepted that man had a nature that could not die, it naturally followed that his punishment must be eternal. As the souls of the wicked were eternal, punishment had to be eternal. So a place of eternal torment was created and called hell. Well, the problem with that is the Bible doesn't teach that man has an eternal soul. That's pagan doctrine. We got that from the Greeks, from the Egyptians, who, the Greeks who got it from the Egyptians. So, where did this teaching come from? Well, historical records tell us that it first appeared among the ancient Egyptians. With the expansion of the Greeks under Alexander, the Egyptian philosophy of life and death became a subject to be examined by Greek philosophers. Plato 
is credited with modifying the Egyptian philosophy of man having two natures. Okay, that's where this idea of two natures. Listen, almost everybody in the church believes this. Man's got two natures. Right? This comes from Plato. Not the Bible. He incorporated this into the Greek religion and it just kind of took over. Plato taught that man had a nature that lived on after death and went on to a higher plane of being. Now, this is Plato right here. But I'll tell you what. I could take most of your popular theologians today and put their name on this and it would fit just fine with what they believe. But again, this is Plato. This is not any of the apostles. This is not the Bible. He says, The soul whose inseparable attitude is life, will never admit to life's opposite, death. So your soul is eternal. Thus the soul is shown to be immortal. Now, don't you think most Christians believe that? You probably believe that. The soul is immortal. You die, what happens? The body goes to dust, the soul goes, keeps on going somewhere because it's immortal. And since immortal, it's indestructible. We believe there is such a thing as death, to be sure. And is this anything but the separation of the soul and body? Again, that's what most Christians believe. Being dead is the attainment of this separation. When the soul exits in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul, this is death. Death is merely the separation of the soul from the body. People, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Hebrews never believed that. Again, this is Plato. The Greeks prided themselves on their superior intellect, their superior philosophy, and their philosophers had been teaching an undying nature of man. The teaching of the Greek philosopher found its way into the Jewish society about 300 years prior to the birth of Christ. Through the Pharisees, who picked up a lot of this, and the Hellenization movement. So they started adopting the Greek mentality. Then early converts to Christianity brought the Greek philosophy of the eternal soul into the early church. A lot of these converts are Greek, right? They're coming in, they're, keep, they're hanging on to what they believe, and just adding it to Christianity. Origen who lived from 185 to 254, was probably the first person to attempt to organize Christian doctrine into a systematic theology. He was an admirer of Plato. And he believed in the immortality of the soul and that it would depart to an everlasting reward or to an everlasting punishment. In one of his writings, Origen says this, The soul having a substance and life of its own shall after its departure from the world be rewarded according to its deserts, being destined to obtain either an inheritance of eternal life and blessedness, if its actions shall have procured for this for it, or to be delivered up to eternal fire and punishment, if the guilt of its crimes shall have brought it down to this. So, he picked up this idea from Plato, the next main player in church history to pick it up was Augustine, or Augustine, however you prefer. Now, here's what we have to understand. Augustine's contribution to Christianity 
to Christian thought was huge. It was immense. He wrote 93 books on theology, philosophy, scripture, and ethics, and in virtually everything Augustine wrote on, he was hugely influential. Okay, you can pick up Calvin and almost everything Calvin teaches, he got from Augustine. All right. Now, in chapter 21 of his book, The City of God, Augustine became the first Christian theologian to write a biblical defense of the view that the lost will suffer forever in hell. And he offered response to a number of objections in this book. Now, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul was crucial to Augustine's case for eternal torment. You get that, right? If the soul's not immortal, how do you have eternal suffering? You don't. Now, to support his view, he says that even the salamander can live in flames but is not killed by them. Then of you say, what? This is what Augustine taught. He's trying to prove eternal conscious torment. Now, let me give you a, a proof that you'll not be able to overcome. Even a salamander can live in flames. Is that true? No. It was a myth of his day, and he just perpetuated the myth to prove something that doesn't even exist. That's sad. He's way better than that. Okay. He also threw in an antidote about a peacock meat lasting a very long time after it's been cooked. I mean, he's using these illustrations to prove eternal conscience. In other words, if you cook peacock meat, it lasts a long time in the fire after that. I'm like, what? What does that have to do with anything? Augustine declares that as for the bodies of the lost, God will miraculously preserve them alive so that they can suffer endlessly in the flames of hell. He argues that the physical flames of hell will torment immaterial spirits. Yeah. Work on that in your brain for a while, okay? Physical fire, immaterial spirits. Not sure how you burn the immaterial, but okay. He argues that the punishment will not be temporary because the Scriptures call the punishment eternal. Yeah, it does, but what does it mean? Okay, no one argues that the word eternal is not there. It is. Whatever this punishment is, it's eternal, all right? For Augustine, death meant the destruction of the body, but the conscious soul would continue to live either in a blissful state with God or an agonizing state of separation from God. So he's just perpetuating the Greek thought. He picks it up, moves it on down the road. In the city of God, he wrote that the soul is therefore called immortal because in a sense it does not cease to live and to feel, while the body is called mortal because it can be forsaken of all life, and cannot by itself live at all. The death then of the soul takes place when God forsakes it, as the death of the body when the soul forsakes it. So he teaches this idea that the soul leaves your body and then your body's dead. Right? Soul goes on. Like I said, most of the church believes this. In his City of God, the list of proof texts for the doctrine of eternal punishment is amassed in chapter 20 and 21. And this was almost a systematic case for eternal torment. And due to its length and Augustine's major influence, it became a standard. Everybody uses these arguments of Augustine to try to prove this. Now, Richard Tarns in his book, or Tarnus in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, points to this influence. He says, it was Augustine's formulation of Christian Platonism that was to permeate virtually all medieval Christian thought in the West. 
So enthusiastic was the Christian integration of the Greek spirit that Socrates and Plato were frequently regarded as divinely inspired pre-Christian saints. He's telling you, this is what was going on, people. And we have to be aware of this. Alright, to understand that a lot of these guys, they taught some good stuff, but they were being influenced by the Greeks. And you've got to figure out which is Greek theology and what is Bible theology. Well, centuries later, Thomas Aquinas, he crystallized the doctrine of the immortal soul in one of his writings. He taught that the soul is a conscious intellect and will, and it cannot be destroyed. That's a common thread. The soul cannot be destroyed. Destroyed, alright? A few centuries later, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation generally accepted these traditional views, so they became entrenched in traditional Protestant teachings. So for the most part, this is what the church today believes. Man has an eternal soul that goes on, as soon as it departs, it goes somewhere and lives forever somewhere, the body just goes to ashes. But is it biblical? That's the question. See, in the Torah... There is no idea of body and soul as two distinct and separate aspects of a human being. You know, the church today, they're divided because there's some people who are trichotomous. They believe body, soul, and spirit. Then you have dichotomous, body and soul. Okay. Then you have biblical, which is you're just a person. It does, they don't divide people up. They don't divide you up. Well, your body and your... They had none of that concept. A living man or woman is seen as a unified organic being. Described in Hebrew as nephesh, breath. That's what nephesh means, breath. Often when you see soul, it's translated from nephesh, it's breath. Nephesh refers to human life in general and to human character in particular. Now David S. Ariel writes, what do the Jews believe? All right, he says this, there is no differentiation, however, between the body, nephesh, ruah, and neshama in the Bible. They all refer to the living, breathing, feeling human being created by God. The human being is a monistic or unified being consisting of one integrated nature. This is what the Jews believe. Man was a whole. All right, you didn't divide him up. There is no notion in the Bible of any dualism dualism or dual nature such as body and soul. Like I said, most Christians believe that, but he says it's not in the Bible. In the human being, the Bible contains no mention of a separate soul. Now, I'm giving you several quotes here from different sources because I want you to see I'm not making this stuff up. All right, there's a lot of people who understand this. This is Hebrew thought. The interpreter's Bible The Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible states this. In the Old Testament, man is regarded as a psychosomatic whole. The idea of disembodied spirit or a soul separated from its body was not congenial to Jewish thought. And it was not until the Persians and Hellenistic periods that Jewish writers were able to entertain a doctrine of persistence of the soul. I'm sorry, pre-existence. Of the soul. Now, the Jewish Encyclopedia states the belief that the soul continued in existence after the dissolution of the body is a matter of philosophical and theological speculation 
rather than of simple truth, and is accordingly nowhere taught in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Jewish encyclopedia, okay? The Jews might have some idea what they're talking about there, at least from their own stuff. The International Bible Encyclopedia states, we are influenced always more and less by the Greek Platonic idea that the body dies, yet the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. So does the Bible teach that man has an immortal soul? Was man created immortal? I mean, like I said, almost everybody believes that today in the church. While most believe that Adam was created as an eternal being, the Bible doesn't teach that. If Adam was eternal, what was the purpose of the tree of life? I wonder why God put that thing in the garden. Do immortal people need trees of life? And I can show you absolute proof, that is, if you believe the Bible, that Adam was created mortal. Look with me at Genesis 3, 22-23. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. What did man have to do to live forever according to that verse? Alright. He had to take from the tree of life and eat so he could live. So what did God do? Kicked him out of the garden. Put some angels there with swords. You don't get back in here because the tree of life's in here and you don't get in here because you're out. You're dead. Adam was created mortal and was always subject to death. However, in establishing the tree of life, God had given him the means to procure everlasting life. If he had obeyed God, he could eat that tree and keep on living. But Adam sinned in eating the forbidden tree, and so he was subject to condemnation, which is eternal death. Man's put out of the garden because of his sin, He's not allowed to be in the presence of God now. Because that's where God lives, in the garden. He's put out. He's lost that relationship. Now before the fall, human beings had the potential to become immortal. Right? Because the tree of life was there. They had the potential to become something more than what they were. But as a consequence of the rebellion of Eden, that opportunity was lost. So Yahweh had warned them that disobedience would result in death. He says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Everyone, go ahead. Eat anything you want except, but of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat it. For the day you eat, you're going to die. And what did man want to eat? The one tree he's not allowed to eat. Because the devil came to him and said, oh, did God tell you that? Don't believe him. Don't believe him. Now the phrase, you shall surely die, is a combination of two forms of the same verb. The word mat is the infinitive absolute of the verb to die and refers to their spiritual death. They're going to die. They're going to be separated from God. They're put out of God, the garden. They weren't in the fellowship with God anymore. The second word is in the imperfect tense of the same verb 
The word tamat refers to the eventual and inevitable death that would come to each member of the race as a result of the fall. If man is immortal, this is just an empty threat. Telling me I'm going to die, I'm immortal. Don't worry about death. Well, let's back up and look at the creation of man. Let's see what God did. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now, the Hebrew word for creature here is nefesh, which has been variously translated, different translators, life, being, soul. King James has a living soul. And see, we got this idea that a soul is something that goes on. Well, this here is breath, all right? It is never, this word is never the equivalent of the Greek Platonic concept of soul as an immaterial, invisible, immortal being. And instead refers to us as a whole being. So each person is a creature. A living being. A living creature. Comprised of the dust of the earth and the breath of life. That makes a creature. Right? We got dirt. God just took a clot of dirt and He formed some little thing and He breathed into it. Boom. Now here we are. So, what happens if we take away the body, the dust of the earth? What do we get? Nothing. Creature, the life is gone, right? And that's, see, most people think, well, if you kill the, the body, then the breath of life goes on. No, it doesn't go on. You take one element away and the thing is gone. So it doesn't work the other way either. If you take the breath of life away, you have no creature either. You can't have one of those elements. Neither survives on its own. Now, they, are, they knew this about the body, but they just felt the breath stayed on. You need a body and you need breath. You need these two components to have life. And that's why the Hebrews saw man as a single unit made up of body and breath. I think it is with Genesis 2-7 here in mind that the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, this verse is usually interpreted as when the body dies, it goes back to dust, and the conscious or the underlying soul goes to God in heaven. I don't think this is what he's talking about at all. Not at all. I th- again, I think he's, t- he's referring to 2.7 when he's saying this. Now, notice the word returns here. The dust returns. Where did the dust come from? The ground. It goes back to the ground. We all understand that, right? You stick us in the dirt, what happens to us? We disintegrate and go back to the you know, elements, right? But look what also returns. The Spirit. Because in 2.7, where did the breath come from? God gave the breath. He takes the breath back, right? The word return is the Hebrew word shovah, and it means to turn back. It goes back to where it came from. In 2.7, God takes dust and forms a man and breathes into him the breath of life, and man becomes a life. In Ecclesiastes 12.7, listen, things go back to the former state. We're reversing Genesis 2.7. We're just going backwards. The dust of Genesis 2.7 goes to the earth just as it was, as Ecclesiastes stresses, and the breath of life of Genesis 2.7 goes back to God who breathed it out. Listen, it's as though Genesis 2.7 never happened. Regarding these two texts side by side, I mean reading these two texts side by side,
makes it obvious that the writer of Ecclesiastes is describing the undoing of Genesis 2-7. We've been given life. What happens at death? We're undone. We're gone. We're gone. Man was made in creation, and he's unmade in death. There's not this part that's, you know, now still floats around. This is, the writer of Ecclesiastes is not celebrating survival. He's talking about man's undoing. How do we know that? Context. 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 The verse before this one. Let's look at verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped. Oh, that's not good, right? The cord's no good anymore. It's snapped. The golden bowl is broken. Uh, bowls aren't too good if they're broken. The pitcher is shattered. Not too good. At the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern. He's talking about all these things being broken. They're no good anymore. And the dust returns to the earth. It was, and the Spirit returns. It's broken. It's gone. It's not good anymore. Something is wrong if we interpret this verse as giving people hope. <laughs> you know, if you get hope out of broken things and shattered things, then you get hope out of this. But no, he's just saying man's going back to where he was. Now, Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says this of Ecclesiastes 12.7. In conclusion to his meditation on death, Koheleth, that's the writer of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth makes allusion to Genesis 2.7 and 3.19, particularly the former. God created Adam, the forefather of all human beings, by forming his body from the dust of the ground and then doing, endowing it with his spirit. Genesis 3.19. In the context of the judgment that is the result of the fall, as the return of the body to the dust, to the ground. Thus what Colette describes is a reversal of creation. The dissolution of the human creation. This is true as well of the last part of the verse, which states that the Spirit returns to God who gave it. This is not an optimistic allusion to some sort of consciousness after death. All right, he's, he talks that the Koheleth is describing this as a reversal. It's simply a return to a pre-life situation. God temporarily united the body and spirit, and now the process is undone. We have in this verse no affirmation of immortality, According to Koheleth, death is the end. So Koheleth simply says when you die, our bodies go back to where they were before, the dust. That's it. This is where we came from. That's where we're going. No thought of immortality of the soul here. Gone. That's what death is, people. When you die, you're gone. Well, aren't you kind of part of you hanging around somewhere? Not according to Hebrew thought. Not according to the Bible. There's nothing hanging around. You're dead. So what, are they gone? Well, no, because there's going to be a resurrection, the Bible says. Well, how's God going to do that? Well, He's God. He created you in the first place. He can create you again, okay? And I think in the recreation, again, it's body and spirit and breath. But this time, it's not fleshly body. It's a mortal body and flesh. And now you're put back together and now we go on. Messianic rabbi, Lauren Jacobs also correctly states, the human soul is not immortal. The Torah teaches us that in the beginning man was banished from the Garden of Eden and forbidden to eat from the Tree of Life so that he would not live forever. 
so that he would not be immortal. Mankind is headed toward death, the first death, followed by the second death. He is not by nature immortal. But see, the King James Bible puts it like this, he became a living soul. Soul here in the Tanakh is nephesh and simply means a breathing creature. Vine's expository dictionary of Old Testament words defines nephesh as the essence of life, the act of breathing, taking breath. The problem with the English term soul is that no actual equivalent of the term or the idea behind it is represented in the Hebrew language. That's important, people. There's no Hebrew word for soul. They didn't have that concept. The Hebrew system of thought does not include the combination or opposition of the body and soul, which are really Greek and Latin in origin. See, it seems like a lot of people know this. doesn't seem to filter down to the church, though. The word soul in English, though it has to some extent naturalized the Hebrew idiom, frequently carries with it overtones, ultimately coming from psychological Greek Platonism and from Orphanism and Gnosticism, which are absent in Nephish. The Interpreter's Bible Dictionary of the Bible says this, In the Old Testament, it never means the immortal soul, Nephish but in its essential, essentially the life principle or the living being or the self as the subject of appetite and emotion, occasionally of volition. Now in the writings of Moses, the Hebrew term nephesh is used in reference to the life that was given to both man and animal. There's no difference without implying any distinction between them. Animal has breath in them, they become alive also. Man was not created immortal, people. I don't care how many times you hear it in the church. I don't care how many times preachers say it. The Scriptures teach that only God is immortal. Let's look at some text. 1 Timothy 6, 14-16. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. What? Well, that's a mistake. Something must be wrong there because everybody knows everybody's immortal, right? Who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Here we see the principle that God is the only being in the universe that has immortality. His immortality is exclusive. In that respect, He is different from all other beings. God's life is immortal. In the Bible, this word, athanasia, the Greek word from immortal, is never used as an attribute of anyone but God. This side of the resurrection. It's used of people after the resurrection because God gives immortality to believers. Now, the noun athanasia only appears three times in the New Testament here, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So, it was mortal, but it puts on immortality at the second coming, at the resurrection. Anybody see anything wrong with 
the ESV translation here. Ah, David, you're letting me down. You're not following the ESV. The term body there used twice, that's not in the text at all. There's no, there's no Greek equivalent for body. They just inserted that. Yeah, it's just, you know, it should just read, and the mortal must put on immortality, not the mortal body. Body's not there. They added it. Why? I don't know. Hey, let's stick body in here. Again, they're trying to help you out, adding words to the Bible. Well, since God alone is immortal, something had to change for human beings who are perishable and mortal to become immortal. And that change took place at the resurrection. At the second coming, the resurrection was given to believers and only to believers. The mortal put on immortality, all non-mortal perish. The Apocrypha uses the word Athanasia seven times, also referring to God. Let me give you one of them in Wisdom 15, 1-3 here. It says, But Thou art God, art kind and true, patient in ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are Thine, knowing Thy power, but we will not sin, because we know that we are accounted Thine. For to know Thee is complete righteousness, and to know Thy power is the root of immortality. See, in the New Testament, we saw that Athanasia was an exclusive attribute of God. But it was a hope for humanity. In this reference to Athanasia, in the Apocrypha, we see the relationship with God is the only means of obtaining that hope. So if you have a relationship with God, you receive immortality. When Christ was asked, and behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How do I get eternal life? Yeshua didn't challenge his theological inference that eternal life is something you have to obtain. If immortality is innate in humans, then Yeshua should have stopped the man and pointed this out. Oh, don't worry, you already got eternal life. You're going to live forever, but one place or the other, you better be good if you want to go to the good place, or you better believe on whatever. Instead, Yeshua agreed with the man that he needed eternal life. And then he challenged the man to follow him. 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life. See, human mortality is the need which only Christ can meet. All humans are mortal, apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from trusting Him. Look at 2 Timothy 1.10. And which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Yeshua, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Now, let me ask you this. Did Christ abolish death for everyone? Is this teaching universalism? No. He abolished death and brought immortality to believers. Only believers have eternal life. So what happens who don't trust in Christ? If they don't have eternal life, what happens when they die? They perish. They're gone. They're dead. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, you all ever heard of them? They say this. Nowhere is the immortality of the soul distinct from the body taught, a notion which many erroneously have derived from the heathen philosophers. Canon Gouge writes this, When the Greek and Roman mind, instead of the Hebrew mind, come to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. Man, I agree with him on that. 
the heathen ideas have crept into the church and we can't recover from it. But listen, these ideas are fundamental to the church. Why? This is how we control people. You want to go to eternal conscious fire and burn forever? Well, you better be good. You better do that. You bet, you know. The Catholic Church has used this for years to keep people in line. The Bible is clear on the issue of just when believers will gain the gift of immortality. Believers were made alive at the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-23. For as, for as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. They were dead because Adam, God's bringing life through resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So at his coming, all right? At his coming. And Paul compares two events here in history. The first event was the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. As a result of that, human nature remained mortal. The second event is the return of Christ and the resurrection. Now, some would argue that, well, you know, my relatives are in heaven because they died. No, you can't. Until His coming, if you don't believe He came yet, then you really don't believe Him at all because He said over and over throughout the Bible, I'm coming soon. I'm coming shortly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming to this generation. Some of you will still be standing here when I return. He said every way He knew how to use language and people today say, He's coming soon. 2,000 years later and He's still soon? No, people. He was soon to the people to whom He wrote the Bible to. It happened in that generation. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. It was a coming in Christ and judgment upon the Old Covenant, bringing in the New, judging man, bringing in the resurrection. Now, some people argue that Matthew 10.28 supports the idea of innate immortality. Well, nothing really supports this, you know, because it's not there. It's not a doctrine. But look at Matthew 10.28. Do not fear those who kill the body. Cannot kill the soul. See, they'd say, see, your soul stays alive. They can only kill the body. The word soul there, suke. It's breath. It's breath. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. What? Well, what is it saying here? Well, those who teach an innate immortality will use this verse to support it, saying that Yeshua compares the body which can be killed to the soul which cannot. They believe that in death the body only dies, but the soul goes on uninterruptedly someplace or another. No, that's not what he's saying at all. I would say what he's talking about here is there's no sharp distinction between body and soul in which the soul is more important, the immortal part. We see that reading, reading into this text, a dualistic view of nature, that's not there. What he's saying is, you know, I want you to go out there, you're going to be persecuted. Some might even kill you, but that's okay. Why? I can raise the dead. You need to fear me because I can kill you and make sure you stay dead because there won't be a resurrection. That's who you fear, God. He's making a contrast here. I want you to don't fear man, fear me. The first, the first death is temporary if God gives you resurrection. The resurrection will reverse it. Yeshua is teaching about the nature of God here, not the nature of man. We need to fear God. Not human. They can kill us. That's all right. God has the power of life. It's my opinion. 
that the church's doctrine of eternal conscious torment comes more from Dante's Inferno than from the Bible. And that book had a greater impact on the church than the Bible did to this, in this whole idea. It's an invention, people, of the Catholic Church to keep people in fear and bondage. And it's worked for thousands, and it still works. People are afraid of this. You know, I've had people ask, how do you evangelize if you don't believe in hell? I'm like, what? So that's how we get people saved? You know, turn or burn is not really good evangelism. Okay? It's not really good evangelism. We present the gospel, which gives life. To not have it is to not have life. Now, to sum this up, the view that I hold, and that I've tried to demonstrate in the last several weeks here, would be called annihilationism. In other words, when you die without Christ, you're gone. You're annihilated. You're no more. You're, you're dust. You're gone. Others like to call it conditional immortality. Now, annihilationism accurately describes the fate of the lost, but many are not comfortable with that emphasis. They say that we prefer the term conditional immortality because it reflects the good news. In other words, conditional immortality gives us the idea that you're not immortal unless you believe in Christ, so it's conditional. Man does have immortality, but it's conditional. That doesn't say anything about the dead, though, really. You know, so I guess it has its place, but it just doesn't, you know, say much about the dead. It just speaks of believers getting immortality on the conditional basis that they believe the gospel. Men don't have it. So, all right, hopefully this study has shown that the scriptures do not support the traditional teaching of non believers suffering in flames of fire for eternity. Man was not created immortal. Man is mortal until he trusts Christ. At which point, we put on immortality. So if you have trusted Christ, you are immortal. If you have not trusted Christ, you are mortal. And if you die in a state of mortality, then you're gone. If you trust Christ and you die, now we go to be with the Lord. We don't go to grave in the sense of like they did, you know, they can the idea of Shoal just being you're gone for a while, no. Because you are immortal. So, the understanding of man being mortal apart from faith in Christ is where I get my view of Shoal being death. See, if man is mortal, when he dies, there's not some part of him that goes somewhere and hangs around for a while, waiting for something else to happen. He's dead. I know some people struggle with that because, well, if he's dead, what's God going to do? He's going to raise the dead because that's what God does. All right? And he raised the dead in AD 70. And everyone who died prior to that time, they just ceased to be because they were mortal. They were dead and gone until the resurrection of the just and unjust. At AD 70, at the judgment of the gods and man, the spiritual judgment that took place during the destruction of Jerusalem, God brought the dead to life. The unbelievers were judged, cast into the lake of fire, which I believe is just annihilation. They're burnt up. The believers went to be with the Lord. That's my take on it. Let's pray. The end. Father, I thank You for Your Word. 
Lord, I know there's many different ideas on this subject. I pray that you'd help us to just be able to put aside our preconceived ideas, our notions, and allow the Scripture to speak. Father, I am aware that the Greek philosophy has infiltrated my mind and my thinking. And sometimes it's hard to think otherwise. Give us clarity, Lord. Help us to see from the Scriptures what they teach, what they say, and not add things to it. Oftentimes we don't even know we're adding. Father, give us the heart of Bereans. May we search the Scripture. May we see if these things are so. That we may apply them to our lives. Father, I thank You for Your grace to us. Amen. You know, I heard uh, Glenn Hill, most of you know Glenn Hill. Glenn is, uh, holds this belief that I believe. And Glenn made a statement. He says, you know, God tells us to love our enemies. Seems kind of contrary that he would burn his forever, torture his forever. Well, we're supposed to love ours. And I thought, yeah, that might be a good point there, you know. We are to love our enemies. I'm going to burn mine forever. It's a long time, people a long time. Now, I know a lot of people with this view have a problem with justice. It's like, there's evil people, and they need to be burned, they need to torture, they need to suffer. Don't push too much for justice, people, okay? Because aren't we all guilty of sin, and the wages of sin is death, so their sin's worse than yours, so you want them to burn, but you want to get eternal life. Ah, we're, we're sticklers on justice for everybody else but ourselves. All right, questions or comments? Now's the chance. Speak now, forever hold your peace. Gary. Uh, I'm not, well, first off, this is another example, uh, sad example, of what you go through every week in teaching how all this information is there, and we, we have taken, we've adopted outside thought. Like you said, right in the beginning, it says, let's kick Adam out of the garden before he takes of the tree of life and becomes immortal. So he was not mortal. But somewhere along the way, we've adopted the fact that we are immortal, period. But, uh, Thanks to Plato. But like I said, that is universally accepted in the church. Now, all you got to do, go to your other friends who believe that and take them to Genesis 3 and say, look, what did Adam have to do to have immortality? He had to eat of the tree. Why? If he didn't eat the tree, what was he? Mortal. Make him think. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that's the problem in the church today. The church has turned off rational thought. Okay? We are like more into feelings and emotions. We don't want to think about things. But God says, come, let us reason together. There's logic involved here. People. Judging that the Augustin, Augustinian Greek philosophy um, has infiltrated since is a is that present in the Eastern Orthodox Church that uh, didn't follow the Roman um, pattern. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, uh, Eastern Orthodox, I'm not sure what, where, what side of the fence they are on on that. I would bet that they are still influenced by the Greeks. Like I said, it started very early. In the, I don't remember exactly, the same word, 
um, we die, we return to dust, and the breath of life returns to God. So where is that place for the breath of life to go? Is there a shield for well, see, that's, that's the point of that, about breath of life. See, God, the breath of life came from God, right? Now, you either have to argue, as some Greeks have argued, that the soul was pre-existent before God created it. So God has, he goes in the room, oh, we got a bunch of souls here, let me take this one, put it, you know, most people believe you come into existence when God creates you, but they believe that your soul was already there. Because, see, they're arguing for immortality of the soul, so it's always there. You know, but what that verse is teaching is God breathed and you became alive. When God takes his breath back, you're gone. Hold on a minute, Shelley. Um, Gary Cole says, consider this. Okay. Our immortality is in Christ. Just as our righteousness is in Christ, we are not intrinsically righteous. Or That's right. We're in Christ. When you're in Christ, you get immortality. Until then, you don't get it. Okay. You don't get it all. Shelley? I was just comment on Gary's that Ecclesiastes verse uh, 12, 7, when the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Um, I have that this, the word spirit is pneuma. Uh huh. Right. Flow. Right. See, that's the thing. Ruach, breath, pneuma, breath. That's what they mean. Breath. God breathed. Whew, he gave life. See, we take that and turn it into soul, and we have a whole new concept for soul. The Hebrews had no idea, no concept for the soul. Didn't exist. We made that up. Thanks for thankful to the Greeks. Yes, John. Quite a while back, but you asked the question, how do you define God? And as a result of how you define God, you either have a Hebrew mind or a Greek mind. And the Greek mind talks about some nefarious you know, love and this and that other thing. Right. Hebrew mind says, he's my shepherd. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Puts in a whole different context. Yeah, that's, and I struggle with this, people, because there's a huge difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought, the way they think. You know, like John was talking, you ask, a, you know, a Greek to describe God. What is God? You know, well, he's immortal. He, they'll give you all these definitions. Well, the Hebrew will say, he's my rock. He's my fortress. Well, you, you can picture a rock, can't you? He's a fortress. He's, you know, my shepherd. That's how they think. It's not this abstract idea of, you know, that we come up with. Um, I don't know who this is from because it doesn't say, but it says, Good morning, David. I agree. Death of the lost is not eternal conscious torment, but do you believe Scripture teaches that those lost are resurrected to be judged by God? Yeah, at eighty seventy. Okay. At 8070, the dead were raised. We looked at that. Daniel 2, Daniel 12, 2 teaches that. John 5 teaches that. Since 8070, I believe when a non believer dies, they perish. Believers go straight to the presence of the Lord. He says, I, I think you said they just stayed dead and not resurrected to be judged before. No, I, I didn't say that. I said they are. You know, prior, we're, we're talking two different things. Prior to 8070, they're dead and they're staying dead until the resurrection. Then, you know, they're judged at the general judgment, the great white throne, and the throne in the lake of fire. Just. Um, since in the second temple period, they, there was writings that talked about judgment from the fire and hell and torture, and then you have in the Talmud all the same type of stuff. Wouldn't they be more to blame than Dante? And if so, 
why did the Hebrews at that time use that to, to put their people in the line? Or? Okay, good, good question. I think that a lot of the, the pseudepigraphal writing and the apocryphal writings that talk about torment, again, this comes from the Greek idea. All right, This Greek idea, 300 years before Christ, Platonism really started to affect the beliefs. All right, now Jeff asked the question, wouldn't that be more responsible than Dante's Inferno? Well, I think that because of the church today and their influence, uh, it's hard for me to say the church today is influenced by the pseudepigrapha because most of the church never even heard of the pseudepigrapha. Yeah, well, Dante could have definitely been you know, affected by those writings, but his writing was just monumental to cement this idea. You know, and Dante was Catholic. And they picked up on that and they said, this is what hell's all about, this suffering and torture and all. You know, and, he, and he, there's some words in the Bible. It says, eternal torment. See that? That proves it. Well, you know, you could put different definitions on that. What does it mean? And that's the problem. They put different, di- different definitions on that. But again, you've you got to go back. To, and to me, this is fundamental to this idea of hell. If man is mortal, then how's he going to be tormented for eternity? perishes. Now, God has to give him immortality, but the Scriptures don't ever say that. They say he perishes. They say God gives believers immortality. So we just have to go back to the Bible and start believing that. Anybody else? We done? Alright, someone is asking, my question is, how to explain entities that people witness? Ghosts, some call it. What are these? Um, Okay. People say they see things. What? Yeah. They see ghosts or whatever. Uh, listen, I've learned you don't ever argue with someone's experience because you can't. Do I need to explain their experience? No, I do not. Okay? It could have been too much pepperoni pizza the night you, before you went to bed. It could be acid reflux. I don't know. People see and experience different things that they swear are real. It is my position that the demons were destroyed at eighty seventy. That's my position. I never run into one, never had a problem with one, did a lot of research on it. I read the book, um, what was it? This guy wrote about demons, and according to him, demons were everywhere. I mean, you had the demon of post-nasal drip, okay? And I'm like, really? You know, and people who believe in him, they're tormented by this because every bush has a demon behind it. You know what? Christ was victorious. He defeated the devil. That's what the Bible says. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And guess what? I believe he did it. And the purpose of the, all those demons and those gods were to stop Christ sacrificing his life for man to bring man back into fellowship with God. That's happened, people. So there's no point. They can't do anything to anybody anymore. It's done. 